you want to get out your message outline. It says the test of compassion on it. We're in Genesis chapter 44 today. Starting to close in on the end. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us the Scriptures, making us Your people. Thank You for new leaders. And thank You for everyone that You have brought here this morning. Lord, You have brought us here to this long and again seemingly unimportant passage. And yet I ask that You would touch our hearts and minds with a reminder of Your kindness and Your mercy and Your patience and Your providence. We ask that you would use it to give us wisdom and to lead us to repentance and to change us. Help us to learn from its example and comfort us by its depictions of grace that's neither seen nor deserved and mercy that's surely undeserved. We ask that you would work your word into our lives. By your spirit, bring about greater faith and obedience in us this morning. We pray that we would be able to learn these things from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Lauren Hillenbrand is an award-winning author. And her most recent book is entitled Unbroken. It's the true story of Louis Zamperini, who is a world-class Olympic distance runner who enlisted in World War II. And he was shot down at sea, and he set what you could only consider to be a tragic world record. He survives on a raft at sea for 47 days. He drifted 2,000 miles into enemy territory where he was captured by the Japanese and held as a prisoner of war for more than two years. It's a story of resilience. As a POW, Zamperini and his uh, fellow captives were constantly on the brink of starvation, sometimes surviving for days on a cup of seaweed or a ball of rice. They walked on legs like sticks. They would eat almost anything. They tried to eat leather, but they couldn't get it down. And even as their bodies consumed themselves, starvation was not the most lethal threat to their survival. Prisoners died far more frequently from the loss of their dignity. The prisoners who allowed themselves to be stripped of their dignity essentially just curled up and died, regardless of the amount of food they did or didn't eat. Now, the dictionary defines dignity as the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. And when we strip someone of their dignity, we're robbing them of their sense of honor and respect. When we steal their honor and respect, when we convince them that the world doesn't really need them, we make them feel more like a burden than a human, we plunge them into the deepest shame. And one of the lessons of this book is that shame kills, literally. Now, most of us will never know the insides of a prison camp. But our dignity can still be stripped from us 
sometimes in violent and cruel ways. Parents shout at children. Men assault women. And on the playground, kids reject the lonely kid with glasses. And our dignity can be stolen from us in really quiet and subtle ways as well. You take a customer's order and they never look you in the eye. You're cut off in traffic and treated as if you didn't even exist. Or when our loved ones listen to our stories with only a fraction of their attention. Or when parents sigh that quiet but oh-so-loud sigh that screams, you are such a burden. And threatened with a loss of dignity, how can we resist the shame? Well, Louis Zamperini <coughs> excuse me, and his fellow captives found one particularly effective way to retain their dignity. They rebelled. They rebelled subtly by stowing pictures of loved ones beneath the floorboards. And they rebelled courageously by sabotaging the construction of engines and weapon parts. And in their rebellion, the prisoners retained a sense of purpose. And they steadfastly insisted that the world still needed them. And in so doing, they maintained their dignity in the worst of circumstances. Now, sometimes, maybe, to use the example of family, when our children rebel, perhaps they're fighting for their dignity. Maybe when we sigh and undermine their place of importance in the family and they stomp into their bedrooms, they're resiliently refusing the shame. Maybe there's some kinds of rebellion that we should encourage. Now, there's one type of rebellion, modest perhaps, that I always try to encourage. Surely I expected it. And perhaps my kids, my sons in particular, would say that I demanded it. And that was when one of my kids, and particularly my daughters, was mistreated in some way. I expected the others to rebel and stand up for their siblings, brothers too, but especially sisters, perhaps saying something to the effect of, you can't talk to our sister that way. Truth be told, I love that kind of rebellion. And in the process of preserving their sister's dignity, they were asserting their own. They're showing me that they had gotten the message loud and clear. As brothers, you have a role to play in this family. Your sister needs your protection. We need you to stand up for her. And my boys needed to realize they have a respected place of honor in the world as protectors and defenders. This type of rebellion is the sweet uprising of kids who know that they are needed. But I think as parents, particularly in this area where we live, we get caught up in believing that our job is to protect our children from all kinds of pain, to guarantee their financial future, to make sure they have the best of everything, or at least more than I had. But perhaps the most important thing we can do for our children is to preserve their dignity by instilling in them the belief that they're needed. Our children need to know they have an indispensable role to play. But more importantly, they need to know that there's a broken world out there that needs them. 
There's a fragmented society that needs a new generation of children who understand their roles as protectors, healers, comforters, servants, justice seekers, grace givers, peacemakers, creators, thinkers, and dangerous, rebellious dispensers of redemptive love. I think it's time to quit protecting our kids from pain and hardship. We need to invest our energies in convincing our children they have a role to play even in our families, and they live in a world that desperately needs them. And if our children have this kind of dignity bestowed upon them, I think they'll be able to endure any kind of pain or hardship with rebellion, big and small, rebellions with purpose and meaning, rebellions that heal and restore in a world desperately in need of redemption. See, that's what Genesis 44 is all about. It's about redemption. It's about brothers standing up for one another. It's about brothers protecting and defending themselves, standing together against injustice and mistreatment. In short, it's about rebellion. So let's turn to Genesis 44. Let's see how this story plays out. It comes to us almost as a play given to us in five acts. So let's turn to act number one, which is the setup. The setup. Starting at verse one. Then he commanded, he being Joseph, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Remember, it's been two decades, a little more than two decades now, since the brothers had sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But in that time, God was not only with Joseph, as we learn in Genesis 39, but God's also with his brothers, but in a very different way. See, God never gave their consciences rest. When at the end of those two decades, the brothers traveled to Egypt for their encounters with Joseph, we see God's with Joseph in his brilliant handling of his brothers. And he's with the brothers as they come to terms with their guilt. During their first visit back in Genesis 42, God graced the brothers, graced them with guilt, fear, and sorrow. And I say grace because they knew they were guilty. And their fear was a godly fear. And they mourned over the effects of their sin. <clears throat> and grace is starting to take shape in their life. And then on the first day of their second visit to Egypt, as we saw in Genesis 43, two weeks ago, the brothers received this unexpected shower of mercy uh, as Joseph's steward greeted them with peace with shalom, 
assured them that the money in their bags was from God, and released Simeon back to them. And they're again greeted with peace by Joseph, who's still incognito. They don't know who he is yet. And they had this great feast and feasted long into the night. And unknown to them, uh, mercy so welled up in Joseph's soul that at one point um, he had to leave and go to his room and weeping over, uh, essentially over the sight of his brother Benjamin. So God is effectively with both Joseph and his brothers in these encounters, and grace and mercy has been poured out upon them all. But now as we take up Genesis 44, there's this life-changing transformation. We're going to see that with the brothers particularly. It's going to involve guilty consciences, repentance and intercession and sacrifice and substitution, all wrapped up in this brotherly love that speaks of Christ. So under God's direction, Joseph's method, if you see it in this temptation, in this test, this trial, he's basically reconstructing the temptation to which the brothers had given into when they had sold him into slavery. This is take two, 20-some years later. And so the, the temptation is on one hand a test, but on the other hand, it's the path to transformation. This story has many parallels to our own lives, but I think it's most powerful if we allow the events just to speak for themselves. So let's see what happens. <coughs> I forgot the good-tasting spray and got the yucky-tasting spray today. is truly yucky tasting. I told my wife it tasted like tar. Not that I've eaten a lot of tar, but. The brothers, when we left them off, were at a great feast. They could eat all they want. They could drink all they want. And apparently they did. And so while they're sleeping off uh, their party, um, Joseph and his stewards set them up. Look at verse 1. Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that would be Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told them. Silver cup is, of course, valuable, but its use here involves, I think, Joseph's personal recollection that his brothers had sold them into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. So as one Old Testament uh, scholar notes, now he's going to harass and test them with silver. And you can see how carefully calculated Joseph is. So the rising of the sun, the groggy brothers uh, wake up, saddle up their donkeys, set off for Canaan. It must have been dramatically relieved as they're thinking over the events of the past few days, the huge party from the night before, and now they had these bulging sacks of grain, they had all their money back, plus their brother Simeon and Benjamin. And soon those pagan pyramids would be far behind them. It's going to say in the rearview mirror, but donkeys don't normally come with rearview mirrors. But they don't get very far 
when Joseph orders his steward essentially to form a posse to pursue the brothers and deliver this precisely worded accusation. So the steward coolly carries out his orders, he catches up to the happy group, and he repeats the accusation word from word, and it's starting at the end of verse 4, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now, little do the brothers know that they've been set up. Of course, the setup leads to act two, which is the capture. The capture. Having been confronted by the steward, the brothers are stunned. They're indignant. So they shoot back. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth, mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? It's a fairly outstanding use of logic. Do thieves voluntarily return valuables only to steal again? Come on, Mr. Stewart. The brothers are so certain of their innocence, they volunteer an extreme punishment on themselves. Verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we'll also be the Lord's servants. The steward, ever so cool, agrees. Likely with a smile. Let it be as you say. Who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So he's being both kind and uh, reasonable here. No death, just slavery, and only for the guilty man. Now, is he mocking them with his reasonableness? Actually, Joseph is just interested in one man, Benjamin, and the choices that his brothers would make about him. So the search proceeds with this unflappable steward calmly overseeing it, as if he has no idea what's about to happen. And the brothers' uh, swift compliance convey this sort of confident uh, annoyance uh, with the whole situation. Verse 11, each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. So Reuben's bag is open first and the steward finds nothing. You can imagine Reuben sort of drawing himself up in indignation and sort of standing there crossing his arms, you know, like, why are we doing this? You know, and then you have the ex-con Simeon's bag open, same results. And then Levi and then Judah and nothing, take that, Mr. Steward. And then follow Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. Again, no silver cup. All eight are now standing there frowning righteously. And next, Issachar and Zebulon pass the test. Imagine the brothers are beginning to smile and murmur about the steward, hardly paying any attention at all to Benjamin's bag. But then in this horrifying moment, the steward lifts this gleaming object out of the grain of Benjamin's bag, and he holds up the silver cup triumphantly. As you can imagine, it's like flashing in the morning sun. End of verse 12, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. No words are recorded, but the brothers' actions tell it all. When Joseph disappeared all the way back in Genesis 37, it was only Jacob who tore his clothes. But now all the brothers do. So 
One of the first signs is solidarity among the brothers. Something new is taking place. They're changing. What would they do now? Would they surrender Benjamin and save themselves? They're not going to abandon their father's favorite son. They are not the same men who once so callously sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. So it is the brothers tear their clothes and go back weeping to the house which they had just left uh, from rejoicing. So now we move on to Act 3, because once they're back at Joseph's, they're forced to face the indictment. The indictment, I-N-D-I-C-T-M-E-N-T. I could use it in a sentence if you would like. Watch the National Spelling Bee on TV. I don't know if anybody saw that. Makes you feel stupid. Watched it 45 minutes, had never even heard of any of the words. I got up and left. The indictment, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can uh, indeed practice divination? Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Joseph, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cup and in, in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up to your father in peace. So the first thing we see upon their return at the end of verse 14 is they fell before him to the ground. This is an act of abject submission. A very subtle touch, Moses' writing of the story. Remember, Joseph, way back when, had dreamed that his brothers would bow before him. And as the dreams are fulfilled, the act of bowing varies, bringing a, a different nuance on each occasion. They don't fulfill the dream once. They fulfill it a bunch of times. Genesis 42, 6, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Then in Genesis 43, 28, they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And now here, they fell before him to the ground. So the bows of Joseph's brothers demonstrate the dynamic fulfillment of Joseph's dream. One commentator notes the dream is happening. The future is at work towards life, but in their fearfulness, the brothers don't even notice it. So with his brothers groveling before him, Joseph maintains this stern persona, verse 15. What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination, which is kind of in the realm of black magic? Whether Joseph actually practiced that or not, the text is unclear. Certainly is using it as a threat. Divination is later forbidden in Israel as a pagan custom in both Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 18. And it's also referenced years and years later in Isaiah 19 in a declaration of judgment against Egypt. So this is a bad thing. But here Joseph has represented himself as this sort of imperious pagan ruler with semi-divine powers. And the brothers don't doubt the powers for a moment. 
They're in an impossible situation. There's nothing they can do. And uh, he has challenged them. He's brought it back. It seems they've been caught red-handed, even though they didn't think they did anything wrong. And Judah steps up, verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. So he says, what shall we say? What shall we speak? There's no way they can clear Benjamin before this uh, cold-hearted grand vizier, the viceroy of Egypt. And in the, the sort of torment of the moment, notice that Judah confesses their long-standing guilt. God has found out the guilt of your servants. He admits their guilt, but it's not the viceroy who uncovered it. It's God who's found it out. And though they're innocent of stealing the cup, they are guilty. Oh, they are ever so guilty. And God's assaulting them at their most vulnerable point. Benjamin, the one in whom their father had entrusted to them with all of these misgivings, all of which were due to their sins against the earlier favored son, Joseph, and through this declaration of guilt, this confession of sin, they're accepting that God has uncovered their sin. And since they'd all offended God together, they committed themselves to suffer together. Verse 16, we are my Lord's servants. And Joseph hears it all. And with a remarkable restraint, he says, verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So now everything rests on what they would do with Benjamin. Joseph is only going to punish Benjamin. And so the reconstruction of the original situation of abandoning the favored brother has now been achieved. Joseph has restored the original grouping of that uh, early betrayal, and the conditions are perfect. He has set them up for a second betrayal but at a much more enticing price than 20 pieces of silver. Now the Lord is their freedom. And these men who previously valued their uh, own well-being above everything else, the temptation to just walk away and leave Benjamin must have been huge. And so as we move on to Act 4, brings us to the key passage of the whole chapter, because here we see Judah come forward with the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And the whole point is to plead before this Egyptian master. And so we see the intercession. The intercession. We talk about interceding for each other. We mean praying for each other. So at this critical juncture, Judah steps forward at great personal risk, asks the viceroy if he could speak, starting at verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. 
And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set eyes, my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So receiving this silent consent, Judah intercedes for Benjamin's freedom. First, by reciting the history behind why Benjamin was there in Egypt in the first place, and then predicting what would happen if Benjamin wasn't allowed to return home. And he's presenting the whole story in a nutshell, which makes it possible for the viceroy and us to reflect on the narrative as a whole. And imagine Judah's delivering it with tears, all kinds of emotion. He's arguing that Benjamin's presence in Egypt is due to the viceroy's persistent questioning and his own insistence. And Judah's reminder of this sort of respectfully implicates the viceroy. He subtly calls on the ruler's integrity and fair play in the question, says, he's only here because you made us bring him. And having implicated him, he recounts his father's fear of losing Benjamin, picking up at verse 24. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, one left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. So if Joseph listens, he's gaining vital, previously unknown information. For the very first time, he learns what happened at home 20-some years earlier when his brothers had returned without him. He learned of his father's heartbroken cry, surely he has been torn to pieces. It still echoes in Judah and his brother's consciences. Judah, of course, had no idea how heartrending of this revelation would be to Joseph. But Joseph also learned that Judah's brothers now speak very differently about the favoritism that was shown to Rachel and her two sons because Judah cites his father's favoritism for Joseph and now for Benjamin as a reason for Joseph to let Benjamin go. He's quoting his father saying, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Could have totally delegitimized, I don't even know if that's a word, it is now, delegitimized all the other brothers because they all had different mothers. He doesn't even mention them. But apparently they have now come to terms with Jacob's favoritism. And beyond that, they just can't bear the thought of their father's misery and suffering. So the sons of the hated wife Leah have come to terms with their father's special love for Rachel and for her two sons. And that's amazing. That's what's behind all of those problems and sins that we saw however many weeks ago. And that Benjamin, the second of these children, should now be loved by the other brothers is astounding. And that Judah could reference his father's favoritism as a reason for freeing Benjamin, it shows us there's a real transformation has happened. Judah in particular, but all the brothers are different now. They've been changed. 
And as surely as Judah's history lesson grips Joseph's heart, his vision about what would happen to Benjamin if he wasn't released just sort of penetrates Joseph like an arrow. Verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And Judah quotes their father's words, but with his brothers, he assumed the responsibility should his father's gray head go down to Sheol in sorrow. And by making the old man's lament their own, you can see there's a massive change in these guys' hearts. Transformation has taken place in Egypt. This fledgling covenant community, community is uh, moving towards solidarity. The brothers have repented of their sin against Joseph. They have forgiven the unfair favoritism of their father. And they so loved their father and his favorite son that they couldn't forsake Benjamin, even though the personal cost is immense. And the transformation is astounding. I mean, remember these guys, they had committed all sorts of sins and abominations, and they're just wretches. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, had conceived and, uh, conceived and executed this horrific deception and genocide of the Shechemites, and they stood bathed in blood before their father, utterly unrepentant. Reuben's, the oldest, committed incest with his father's concubine in an effort to gain ascendancy over his father. And son number four, Judah, got Tamar, the wife of his deceased son, pregnant, thinking she was merely a Canaanite prostitute. Clearly, they're not the same men. Something has happened. They've been changed. Over these years, God has been at work. That becomes really obvious in the last few verses. So we move into the final act of the play. We see Judah take on the role of the substitution. The substitution. Judah's intercession culminates in a sacrificial substitution as he steps out of the brotherly circle and speaks for himself. Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah's personal transformation is extraordinary. Although his name means praise, his life has been anything but. But God has been at work, and his humiliation has become the ground for this deep work of God in his life. We see him as a man uh, now with this great uh, force of character. And ultimately, his father Jacob would see Judah as the bearer of the line of promise. That he'll prophesy in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And as God would have it, Judah's willingness to suffer as a substitute for his brother foreshadows the substitutionary atonement of his ultimate son, Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We must never underestimate the transforming 
grace of God. Just as God was with Joseph and his brothers across those two nearly silent decades, so he is with all of his children. Transformation is intrinsically connected with the gospel. In fact, it fairly explodes at conversion. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. In the Greek, it says, if any man in Christ, new creation. Indicating this sort of explosive transformation. Boom, new creation. That's supposed to be the experience of every believer. At the same time, it introduces a process of ongoing transformation until Christ returns. We see that first John chapter three. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The New Testament calls us to commit ourselves to transformation. Romans 12, one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And our role is to participate in this transformation. Philippians 2 Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, they write that about us, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Judah and his brothers came to see that God was caring for them, All the way along, so must we. God has always been and still is about the utter transformation of his people. And the state of Joseph and his brother's heart is such, they don't plead for mercy. Notice what he says. I know we're getting short on time here. He doesn't say, Joseph or Judah doesn't say, oh, grand vizier of Egypt, you know, we pray, give us mercy. He says, let your servant remain instead of the boy. He asked for the privilege to suffer on behalf of his brother. He asked for the privilege of serving as a slave in the place of his brother Benjamin. How does that reveal the heart change of Judah towards Benjamin? Remember, Judah is one of the brothers who years before ignored the cries of Joseph, was indifferent to the cries of his father. Now he's begging for the privilege of being a slave in his brother's place. It's interesting here that we have the guilty offering himself as a substitute for the innocent. We have the guilty offering himself as a substitute for the innocent. Judah's new heart manifests itself in love to God and love to neighbor. He demonstrates the love of God. He's basically saying, God, you found me out. I deserve this. And so he has a new heart, a new view, uh, a new love, and a submission to God and a loyalty to his brother. And he's willing to become a slave to save Benjamin. Later on, Moses would tell us that he was willing to be sent to hell for the sake of his people. And the Apostle Paul would express a willingness to be cursed if it meant the salvation of those he loved. But not one of them actually had to do it. 
And even if they had, they would only have been sacrificing themselves for people very much like themselves. In Jesus' case, the sacrifice was made for those people basically unlike himself. We are sinners. He is sinless. We are unlovely and unloving, and only he possesses that perfect love that reaches out to us when we were sinning against him. When Jesus pleaded for us before the Father, he said, in effect, I'm willing to be sent to hell to save these sinful, unbelieving people. And God said, that's a sacrifice I'll accept. You will be cursed for them. My wrath will fall on you rather than them. And on the basis of your sacrifice, I will deal mercifully with them. I will save them. When Judah pleaded for Benjamin, he may have hoped that it wouldn't prove necessary for him to actually pay this price. Judah may have thought that this great prime minister of Egypt might be merciful. And even if he was made a slave, maybe he could somehow procure his liberty uh, later on down the road. When Jesus pleaded for us. He knew that he would have to pay the full price of our redemption by his death. And he didn't shrink from the cost. That he would be the lion of the tribe of Judah who was innocent, who would offer himself as a substitute for his guilty brothers and sisters. And that substitute would be accepted. And that he would live and die in our place that we might experience the mercy of God. God accepted. The Bible says he was satisfied with the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. Are you satisfied with that? Have you accepted that? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are wise beyond our comprehension. And you are good beyond anything that we can imagine. We thank you for your providence, for the way that it advances your glory and our good. And we thank you that you do not leave your children alone to just stew and suffer in their sin, but that you are determined to make them like your son. That you are determined to bring about repentance and faith and obedience and utter transformation. We praise you for this, God. We thank you that we are not beyond your grace and we thank you the blood of Jesus covers our sins. For we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.